0: We use these excursus episodes to dig a little deeper into something that we've encountered in a particular book of the Bible that we just didn't have the opportunity to deal with adequately within the time constraints of a normal episode. Most of our episodes here at End of the Word are about 20 minutes long, so sometimes you encounter something and then you just have to stick a flag in it and come back to it later, and that's what we're trying to do here. In this excursus episode, I want to come back to the whole issue of persecution— I mentioned in the first episode in the series on 1 Peter that Peter wrote this letter to a group of Christians living in Asia Minor who were just starting to experience some cultural pushback for their faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't persecution at this point. In fact, Thomas Schreiner says here, the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends, Close quote. So Peter wrote to stabilize them. He didn't want them to exaggerate the dangers they were facing. He said in chapter 3, verse 13, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Closed quote. So let's not exaggerate here, okay? Let's not catastrophize. Let's just keep on doing what we were told to do. Suffering may come. It may not come. We don't know. But we know what we were told to do, so let's just keep on doing that and that turned out to be very good advice. Peter wrote this letter in AD 63, and there was no formal state persecution of Christians in this region until AD 112. So hear that. That's almost 50 years. So if they had exaggerated, if they had panicked, think of all the ministry opportunities they would have missed out on. But thankfully, it appears that they heeded Peter's counsel. They put their heads down, and they went about their business, and they experienced a full human lifetime of significant growth and expansion in the region. In fact, it was that growth and expansion that eventually did attract the attention of the Roman Empire. In AD 112, the Emperor Trajan sent Pliny the Younger as governor of the province of Bithynia, the very people Peter had written his epistle to 49 years previously. Now, Pliny was a classic bureaucrat. He wouldn't do anything without asking his boss for advice and approval. And one of the things he wanted to get some counsel on was how he should deal with all the crazy Christians living in his region. Christianity by this time had exploded, and it was now understood by the Romans as distinct from Judaism and therefore not subject to their special permissions and exemptions. So how should they be treated? Trajan initially decided that he wanted more information. He knew that the huge numbers of citizens that had converted in his area had affected the local economy. But most of what he knew about Christians came from people who had an axe to grind against them. So he gave Pliny the authority to investigate the movement, and investigate he did. And because Pliny was Pliny, he recorded absolutely everything and sent it back to Trajan in the mail. And we're thankful that he did that because his letters have become one of our most important sources on the history of the church in this time period. Let me read to you a bit from that correspondence. So this is Pliny writing back to the Emperor Trajan. He says this, So far, this has been my procedure when people were charged before me with being Christians. I have asked the accused themselves if they were Christians. If they said yes, I asked them a second and third time warning them of the penalty. If they persisted, I ordered them to be led off to execution. For I had no doubt that whatever kind of thing it was that they pleaded guilty to, their stubbornness and unyielding obstinacy at any rate deserved to be punished. There were others afflicted with the like madness whom I marked down to be referred to Rome because they were Roman citizens. Later, as usually happens, the trouble spread by the very fact that it was dealt with, and further varieties came to my notice. An anonymous letter was laid before me containing many people's names. Some of these denied that they were Christians or had ever been so. At my dictation they invoked the gods and did reverence with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, along with the statues of the gods. They also cursed Christ, And as I am informed that people who are really Christians cannot possibly be made to do any of those things, I considered that the people who did them should be discharged. Others against whom I received information said they were Christians and then denied it. They meant, they said, that they had once been Christians but had given it up, some three years previously, some a longer time, one or two as many as twenty years before. All these likewise both did reverence to your image and the statutes of the gods and cursed Christ. But they maintained that their fault more than error amounted to nothing more than this. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before sunrise and reciting an antiphonal hymn to Christ as God and binding themselves with an oath not to commit any crime, but to abstain from all acts of theft, robbery, and adultery, from breaches of faith, from denying a trust when called upon to honor it. After this, they went on, it was their custom to separate and then meet again to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. And even this, they said, they had given up doing since the publication of my edict, in which, according to your instructions, I had placed a ban on private associations." So I thought it the more necessary to inquire into the real truth of the matter by subjecting to torture two female slaves who were called deacons, but I found nothing more than a perverse superstition which went beyond all bounds. Therefore, I deferred further inquiry in order to apply to you for a ruling. The case seemed to me to be a proper one for consultation, particularly because of the number of those who were accused for many of every age, every class, and of both sexes are being accused and will continue to be accused. Nor has this contagious superstition spread through the cities only, but also through the villages and the countryside. But I think it can be checked and put right. At any rate, the temples, which had been well-nigh abandoned, are beginning to be frequented again, and the customary services, which had been neglected for a long time, are beginning to be resumed. Fodder for the sacrificial animals, too, is beginning to find a sale again. For hitherto it was difficult to find anyone to buy it. From all this, it is easy to judge what a multitude of people can be reclaimed if an opportunity is granted them to renounce Christianity. Closed quote. Now, as I said, that letter is one of our absolute best sources of information about the life and worship of early Christian communities. We could spend all day talking about that letter. But I want to fast forward for now to the emperor's reply. He wrote back to Pliny and said, You have followed the correct procedure in deciding the cases of those who have been charged before you with being Christians. Indeed, no general decision can be made by which a set form of dealing with them could be established. They must not be ferreted out. If they're charged and convicted, they must be punished, provided that anyone who denies that he is a Christian and gives practical proof of that by invoking our gods is to win indulgence by this repudiation, no matter what grounds for suspicion may have existed against him in the past. Anonymous documents which are laid before you should receive no attention in any case. They're a very bad precedent and quite unworthy of the age in which we live. Closed. Quote. So Trajan says, basically, if someone is proved to be a Christian, then, of course, punish them. But don't actively seek them out, and don't deal with anonymous tips. So this is the equivalent of don't ask, don't tell. Trajan was trying to thread the needle here. He wanted to discourage the growth of Christianity without wiping out a significant chunk of his population. So he told Pliny, make it difficult make it costly, but in general, don't make it fatal. Don't go looking for people. Don't ferret them out. So, as you would expect, Pliny backed off. Christianity remained technically illegal and socially and politically costly, but it became relatively rare for people to be actively punished by the state. There was the odd exception here and there, But on the whole, the don't ask, don't tell policy was in place and the church had a significant amount of operating space in the region for the better part of 200 years. The persecution that was always just around the corner generally never actually arrived. It was always a possibility in their minds, but rarely a reality on the ground. And the careful reader of history will be sure to notice that. Trace out the timeline. Peter wrote this letter in A.D. 63. There was no serious persecution of Christians for 49 years. And then there was, under Pliny for about a year in A.D. 112, when he was arresting, torturing, and inquiring. But then he was called off, and the don't ask, don't tell policy came into effect. From that point on, Christians were living at the margins of society, but they weren't being actively hunted down. So for more than 200 years, it was costly, but generally not deadly, for the followers of Jesus Christ in this region. And then there was another outbreak. Around the year 323 AD, the Eastern emperor Licinius developed a deep-rooted suspicion towards the Christians in his administration. But hear that. There were Christians in his administration prior to 323 AD. But then all of a sudden, this was unacceptable to him. And this happened shortly after the Western emperor Constantine had officially embraced Christianity and had called for the full acceptance of the Christian faith. Licinius, whose capital city was in Bithynia, now viewed all Christians as potential agents of his Western rival. So his hatred of Christians actually had far more to do with their perceived political loyalties than their theology or practice. But regardless, he decided that he needed to clamp down. And clamped down, he did. It got ugly, real ugly. Simon Baker tells the story this way. He says, Roman governors were free to punish dissident Christians, shut down some churches, demolish others, and in the case of the bishops in the province of Bithynia Pontus, south of the Black Sea, murder key figureheads in the Christian clergy. According to Eusebius, their bodies were chopped up and thrown into the sea as food for fish, Close quote. But then, in 324 AD, about a year later, Licinius lost a civil war to Constantine, and the trouble passed, and Christians not only came in from the margins, they were invited by Constantine into the very heart and center of the Roman world, which, ironically, turned out to be something of a death sentence. Once it was easy for people to be Christians, a flood of nominally committed people came charging through the front door, and the church was forever changed. Some say that it took a thousand years for us to recover from that victory. Many argue that we never have. So, all that to say, I think Peter's counsel to these folks was absolutely spot on. Listen again to what he said in chapter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled 17. That was exactly the message that these people needed to hear. Don't exaggerate the difficulties that you're facing. Just because persecution feels like it is just around the corner doesn't mean that it is. Sometimes it stays just around the corner for 50 years or 200 years. Sometimes it is always five minutes to midnight and an awful lot of good work can be done under those conditions. So don't panic don't overreact and don't lose your focus. Stay on mission and keep your cool. But if you should suffer, and you will, every 50 years or every 200 years, you can expect a short, intense, fatal outbreak of actual persecution, if history is any guide at all. If that does happen and you do suffer, then you will be blessed. After all, didn't Jesus say, blessed are you, When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, serving Christ in a time of persecution is like the bonus round in Super Mario. You can literally rack up the eternal rewards in a way that you just can't do on a sunny day. So either way, Peter is arguing, there really is no reason for alarm. On the sunny day, You can get more done. On the stormy day, you can accumulate more reward. Either way, just do your job. Keep your head and carry on. And whatever you do, don't allow yourself to get angry at the culture. Make your case. Explain your faith. But do it with gentleness and respect. If you act like a jerk and suffer for it, that's on you. A lot of people attract the negative attention of the government for sub-gospel reasons. There's no credit in that. You, you have to make sure that there is absolutely no credibility to the accusations and slander of outsiders. Make sure that there is nothing they can point to in your attitude or behavior that would disqualify you or rob you of credit. Keep your testimony, watch your anger, and never pay back evil with evil. Peter made that point explicitly. He said, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, First Peter 2, 23. So that's our example. That's the pattern we're supposed to follow in times of persecution. You absorb the punches, you turn the other cheek, and you do nothing but love, preach, and extend mercy to all. That's the Jesus way. And if you are suffering for anything else, That's on you. So that's the story. When when looked at from a very wide angle lens, that's the story of Peter's counsel and how it played out in the region of Bithynia Pontus. Now, what, if any, lessons can we learn about how to prepare for persecution and how to endure persecution should it come to us as modern day believers? Let me suggest a couple of takeaways. First of all, don't exaggerate your difficulties. The folks that Peter wrote to in AD 63 were not being burned at the stake. They were not being fed to the lions. Again, to quote Thomas Schreiner, the only specific suffering noted is discrimination and mistreatment and verbal abuse from former colleagues and friends, close quote. So that's not nothing, but it's not naphtha either. These people were not being used as lanterns in Nero's garden. There was a price to pay, but it was not as high as some people were thinking it was and it probably didn't warrant being categorized as persecution. We do need to be careful about throwing that word around. Ross Duthat wrote an excellent article in the New York Times a couple of years ago cautioning American Christians about referring to their loss of cultural power as persecution. He said, being marginalized, being sued, losing tax-exempt status, this will be uncomfortable, but we should keep perspective and remember our sins, and nobody should call it persecution. Close quote. And then he chastises some in the Christian media for doing that, for for overreacting to every bit of cultural pushback, every step back in terms of our cultural position and power, referring to those things as as, as if it were on par with being fed to the lions in the Colosseum. He says Using the persecution label too promiscuously, Doesn't do enough to acknowledge the vast gulf separating the situation of Western Christians and the incredible heroism of our co believers overseas, who face eliminative violence on an increasingly dramatic scale. And it doesn't actually prepare conservative believers for a future as a hopefully creative religious minority, because it conditions them slash us to constantly expect some kind of grand tribulation that probably won't actually emerge, closed quote. Now, remember, regardless of your view on the end times here, historically speaking, that is absolutely correct. Had the Christians in Pontus Bithynia developed a tribulation complex, they would not have been well prepared for the actual future that awaited them. Because the tribulation, generally speaking, did not emerge. Not the one they were expecting. For 50 years, it was around the corner. Then it pounced and immediately disappeared. And then it was around the corner for another 200 years. And then it struck again and immediately gave way to incredible and ultimately unhelpful cultural privilege. So I don't think it can be argued that historically speaking, it is really unhelpful when Christians develop a tribulation complex sours our attitude, and it takes us out of the game. So try to deal honestly with the trouble you're actually facing. What is on the table? As I write this, some churches in Canada are really wrestling with the temporary restrictions on building capacity as part of the government's approach to managing the pandemic due to COVID-19. Now, we're hopefully nearing the end of that here, but to some, this has felt like persecution. And I understand where that comes from. When the government says that that you can only have 100 people in your sanctuary that can actually seat 650 people, that feels like persecution. I, I know that world. That's the world I'm walking into in the next couple of weeks. That will mean that I have to wake up at 4 30 in the morning on a Sunday to run multiple services inside and outside to serve our entire congregation. That's going to be hard but I have a difficult time thinking of that as persecution. It's it's hard, but for me, it doesn't reach the threshold for using that word. Brothers and sisters in North Korea are meeting in groups of four in root cellars and whispering hymns in the dark, and if they get caught, they're going to be executed. That's persecution. What I'm going through, what what many pastors in Canada are going through, is inconvenient and exhausting and costly— but it doesn't feel to me like persecution. And I don't think it would be helpful for my people if I called it that. I think this letter from Peter cautions me about making too much of the difficulties that I'm facing. Second takeaway for me is this. I think we should remember that exceptions are generally not the rule. I said that from AD 112 through to AD 323, the don't ask, don't tell policy generally did not result in Christians being hunted down and persecuted. And that's true. But there is a well-known historical exception. In AD 115, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch in Syria was arrested and sent to Rome, whereupon he was executed by mauling in the Colosseum. Now, Antioch in Syria was not in the province of Bithynia, but it was near enough to make a lot of people nervous. If it happened over there, then it could happen here, right? But here's the thing. It didn't. It didn't even happen again over there. The martyrdom of Ignatius was exceptional. He was exceptional, and the Romans found him exceptionally annoying, and so he was arrested. Notice that his whole church wasn't arrested, and notice that it didn't lead to a general roundup of Christian clergy, but he was arrested, and he was executed for the amusement of the masses in Rome. That did happen. But it didn't lead to anything else happening on a general scale. And that's worth seeing too. Sometimes exceptions don't become the rule. Sometimes they're just exceptions. Almost like the devil is trying to intimidate us into either unmanly or ungodly behavior. Either way, he wins. So know that and conduct yourself accordingly. Third takeaway for me is that we should expect intermittent persecution. So if you're writing these down, number one, don't exaggerate your difficulties. Number two, remember that exceptions are not the rule. And number three, expect intermittent persecution. Just bake that into your cake. Factor that into your equation. Every 50 years or 200 years or whatever, you can expect a fierce outbreak of formal and fatal persecution. Write it into your calendar. Book it. It will happen. And saying it out loud will help you be less surprised when it does happen. Christians should never be shocked by persecution. How could we be? We follow a Savior who was crucified naked on a Roman cross. That, to me, does not scream social privilege. That bodes ill for my future standing in society. So expect it. Now, don't expect it every day or every year or every decade, but count on it coming in all its ugly fury from time to time. In 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, the apostle says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, close quote. So factor this in. Nobody gets to be surprised. Nobody gets to cry foul. This will happen. It will be God's will. It will be sent to test you. It will be permitted for good purposes. It's going to happen. It's par for the course. And besides, if you endure, if you show your faith under trial, it will look good on you come judgment day. So resolve to do your duty come rain or shine. Fourthly, don't jump the gun, meaning don't switch into persecution mode too early. Persecution mode is fight or flight, neither of which is a great posture for kingdom service. I think of that story in Nehemiah 4, where it says, each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Nehemiah 4, 17-18. Those folks were expecting to be attacked any day. So everybody did their work with a shovel in one hand and his weapon in the other. Or if you needed two hands for the work you were assigned, then you had your sword strapped on at your waist. And of course, that's brilliant. That's wise. But if you switch into battle mode too early, then not a lot of work gets done. And that can easily happen in the church. A lot of churches out there appear to have switched into battle mode. They're swinging their swords at the government, at other churches, and at anyone who doesn't agree with them about the dangers that we're facing. I think that's counterproductive. I'm not sure what it's accomplishing, but I know what it's not accomplishing. It's not accomplishing the work we were assigned. There is a time for fight or flight. I get that. I just don't think it's here now. And acting like it is distracts us from our business. So don't jump the gun. And then fifthly, don't allow the threat of persecution to define you. Persecution should never change who you are. It's not like there's one Christian persona for times of peace and then one Christian persona for times of trouble. That's not what we see in the Bible. And that's not what we see in First Peter. Peter did not want his people to become angry. He did not want them to revile. He did not want them to lose their cool. He said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. First Peter 3, 9. Don't let them change who you are, he says. Be like Jesus, the Jesus of peace and the Jesus of tribulation, because he was the same Jesus every time. Jesus never allowed his persecutors to change him. He was who he was, no matter what people did to him. While they were nailing him to the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. That's Jesus in good times or bad. Don't allow persecution to change you. And don't allow the threat of persecution to change you. Right now, where I am, I would argue that it isn't the experience of persecution that has changed in some folks and some pastors. It is the threat of persecution. It is the shadow. It is that thing that we feel or sense around the corner. And how people respond to that will affect their attitude and behavior. If you imagine that persecution will be unbearable, then you will respond with fear. If you think that persecution is undeserved, then you will respond with anger. And neither of those attitudes is terribly helpful. What we need are people of focus people who can take their eyes off the shadow and keep them firmly fixed on the job at hand. So don't allow the threat of persecution to define you. Then sixthly and lastly, don't become so obsessed with external threats that you fail to look inside. It is interesting that in Peter's second letter to these people, the focus is completely different. In the first letter, he was talking about threats on the outside, how big they were and how big they weren't. But in the second letter... He is talking about threats on the inside. The issue in 2 Peter is that a number of false teachers have arisen within the congregation, inside the churches. They're teaching a false and deficient version of Christianity. Based on what Peter says in this letter, it seems that they were denying the return of the Lord and the prospect of final judgment, and they were commending an attitude that scholars often refer to as antinomianism. The point is, they were so busy looking for threats coming at them from the outside that they totally missed the threats growing up among them on the inside. That can easily happen. When we become obsessed with the dangers and threats out there, we become willing to tolerate or make peace with a great many harmful things in here. Let me ask you a serious question. What is the greatest threat to the future of the church in North America? Government restrictions or catastrophic internal failure? Honestly, what do you think? And and what are you thinking more about? The next piece of legislation or the health and maturity of the church? I think the greater danger is always coming at us from the inside. But I think the devil is always trying to distract us by making noise and whispering threats on the outside. So don't play that game. Don't fall for that nonsense. Now, I'm not saying to ignore the threats outside. I'm just saying to right-size them. They're there just around the corner where they will generally stay doing the job for which the devil designed them. And every once in a while the leash will lengthen and the bark will become bite and the church will be chastened and often in the providence of God purified and greatly strengthened. But then the leash will be yanked and the threat will recede and the work will continue. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 1 Peter 4, 19. That's the game plan, brothers and sisters. Do your thing do your job. If persecution comes, that's up to God. He holds the leash. Our times are in his hands. You just do what you were told and entrust your soul to a faithful creator. He loves you. He sees you, and he is coming. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to this special excursus episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over at the website at ww.intheword.ca. Of course, the best way to manage our growing library of content is by downloading the Into the Word app onto your smartphone. You can find that wherever you find your apps. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. I'd love to see you there, and I hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.